We're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. More than 2,000 COVID-19 cases have been reported in our public schools since July 1st. Education officials have been closely monitoring campuses in counties where the Delta variant is surging. We caught up with Interim Superintendent Keith Hayashi yesterday afternoon. He just returned from visiting the Big Island, where he stressed that vaccinations, masking, hand-washing, and staying home when sick are key to protecting our school communities. I did visit Ka'u, Ke'au, and Pahoa complex area. I did get together with the uh, school principals afterward, and, you know, we, we, we talked about different, uh, you know, successes and concerns that they have. Again, you know, like all of our school administrators and, and educators, they're working really hard. You know, looking at the caseload, the cases, COVID cases, if you go to our dashboard from our website, you know, you're able to see the individual cases by, uh, by day that our, our schools are reporting. And it's important to remember that when we look at those numbers, uh, it includes students and employees that are included in those counts. And what we're, we're, what we're looking at is that those numbers are definitely lower than what we're seeing in the surrounding community. It's being validated also by um, you know, our partners at the Department of Health. And uh, so for us, our ask and our plea to our communities across the state is please follow the recommendations that are putting out by the Department of Health and, and by the state authorities. It's really important that our communities do that to ensure that we can continue to uh, provide in-person learning for our students in school. Coming to school is not just about academics. It's definitely academics, but it's not just that. It's our students being able to get together with their friends, again, masks, and implementing those mitigation strategies, like seeing their friends, you know, talking with their teachers in person, counseling services, the schools offer an array of supports for our students. And so it's really important, our message to, to everyone in our communities is to be careful, be safe, because the choices that they make impact our schools. Well, what can you tell us about the uh, vaccination rates for uh, DOE employees? Right now, it's at 80, about 85%, I think. And we're looking at school level and complex area level, our salaried employees. That includes our both certificated and classified staff. That, that percentage, again, is our employees working really hard to get vaccinated, inputting their vaccinations into our EHR system. Right. Uh, the vaccination being validated by our school principals. So we've got to continue to do that. What can you tell us about, let's say, the teachers or the staff that don't want to undergo the testing? And, and mm-hmm. you know, I understand that uh, there may be uh, some who have actually quit. I don't have any exact numbers on people who have, uh, have quit the department because of their choice not to test. We would want all of our employees in the department, you know, because they are valid educators, you know, to be working with our students. But the choice be vaccinated and a choice to test is, is up to the individual. It's important that, you know, our students, that all of our employees are tested. If they're vaccinated, they're vaccinated, but they go through testing because of the safety, you know, of our students and our, the rest of the faculty and staff is, is the number one thing that's really important to us, right? So, right. Uh, you know, we, we honor the individual's choice not to test and not to vaccinate. But at the same time, they are making a choice then not to be working for the department because we have to ensure the safety of everyone. The department, we're rolling out what's called 311. Yeah, and 311, the first three is for a focus on our students. The next one is on our well-being of our staff. And the next one is our system. And so when we look at the first three, a well-being of our students and how, we, how they're doing, number one is attendance. We need to make sure that we're accounting for all of the students that are you know, registered at our schools, we need to find them if they're not in school. Our schools are working very hard to do that right now. We're monitoring attendance. The next one is academics, social, emotional well-being of our students. Those are the next two. And so both for academics and the social, emotional well-being, schools are running assessments and screeners to find out where our students are. Based on that data, schools are going to be working together with, with their teachers and you know, school staff to make decisions to support our students in those areas. Health officials are saying we don't know if our numbers have peaked yet 
And, you know, there's a concern by some parents that there isn't enough available for remote learning if we get to a point where the kids aren't back in school again. How do you address those concerns? If we do uh, determine that, you know, we do have to transition to, to a different model and perhaps go to full distance learning, schools do have plans in place for their individual schools to be able to do that. You know, we're confident that we're, we will be able to address the students' needs should that decision be made. However, the really important thing is that we focus on the in-person learning, that our communities continue to help us to ensure that they practice safety and heed the warnings and advice of the Department of Health and our officials. That way we're all in it together. Yeah, it's not just schools, but it's everyone in our communities helping each other. I know there were some schools on the west side where they were having staffing challenges, mm-hmm. and I think the ask was out to you know bring in additional support just because you know that community out there on the west side is just getting slammed by the surge in cases. There was a request for support, and the support was for supervision in the cafeteria, supervision on the playground, and all of us in the Department of Education, whether it's school-level complex area and state offices, We really understand that we're in this together and that we need to support each other at all levels. And so the call went out to the complex area staff. They went to to those schools to help. State offices went down and are continuing to go down to support, to wipe tables, to monitor students, sanitize tables, to ensure that mitigation strategies are being implemented. So when, when we talk about it takes a whole village, I mean, it's the village coming out now to really support the schools. That was Keith Hayashi, interim superintendent of our public schools, talking about how officials are monitoring the rising COVID cases among students and staff. The DOE has begun posting the numbers daily on its website. Hayashi urges parents who have concerns uh, to contact the schools directly. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with new contemporary acquisitions on view, including works by Jennifer Steinkamp, Lee Hua Yi, and Richard Mizrak. HonoluluMuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Patrice Vecchioni, author of Step Into Nature. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about nurturing imagination and spirit in everyday life. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Civil Beats Reality Check looks at the reporting hiccups with the COVID cases. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us to talk more about his story. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Catherine. So, you know, the data glitches that we've been having, pretty distressing. Uh, Yes, they've been uh, really distressing. It's been really alarming for the public to see some of these numbers come in. Um, And then, as you know, we see the number come in. And then we hear, oh, that included a lot of backlog cases. So we really were trying to figure out why are these backlogs happening? And, you know, the big one that we talk about in the article was um, earlier uh, this month uh, where on a Sunday, I believe it was, we had 1,678 cases reported, uh, new positive cases. Um, but then it turned out that it, that included like six, 600 to 700 uh, cases that had been backlogged, it turns out, for weeks. And uh, it really created an alarm for a lot of people. Yeah, because, you know, we know that the officials in charge re- rely or need to rely on good data to make some decisions about, you know, how we manage this pandemic. Uh, so it it doesn't make their job easy. 
No, it doesn't. And, th and this is part of the problem. So it's not only the public who gets alarmed by it, but policymakers also are looking at these numbers, trying to figure out what do we do? Do we have more restrictions? Do we have fewer restrictions? Um, if you recall, uh, earlier or last month, uh, some people were saying, hey, maybe we're reaching a point where uh, we're, we're peaking and, and we're going to go downhill in terms of new cases uh, soon. Uh, so, and they were doing that by looking at the data, trying to figure out, okay, maybe, maybe we're peaking. So the numbers are really important. And uh, the fact that they're often lagging uh, really does create uh, concerns among a lot of people. So what did you find out? Why are we seeing this? Yeah, so it, it turns out if you think of this as being, you know, the information superhighway, um, uh, data is going from the labs that are doing the tests, um, often to an intermediary called the Hawaii Health Information Exchange. Um, sometimes there's another intermediary called Data House that where data goes, and then it goes on to maybe the Health Information Exchange and on to the Department of Health, which ultimately reports them. A lot of times there'll be a problem along the way. It can be any number of things. Um, maybe something was data was put in wrong. There was some kind of transposed numbers or um, something like that. And Apparently, what we're told is that can throw a glitch in the system and cause things to really get piled up and just quit moving forward. So, uh, any I don't know remedy to this situation? You know, if we get these, if we get the the traffic jams on the information highway. Well, yes. Okay, so the Health Information Exchange is doing a lot of work now. They're really uh, talking to the other labs and other. Uh, uh, participants in the in these systems to try to figure out what are some best practices, how can we fix this and keep it from happening again. Uh, when so they're in the process of doing that now. Uh, they should be coming up with some new policies and procedures in the next uh, week or so. I'm told. In the meantime, it does look like these things could continue to happen sometimes. Uh, we just we saw something smaller, but just uh, yesterday and the day before where there were something like 455 cases reported one day. Uh, but even then, the Department of Health said uh, this includes some that are, uh, this does not include some backlog cases. And then the next day, it went up to over a thousand cases. So that wasn't really a 100% jump. It was, that included some of the cases that have been backlogged. And I know they say the important thing is not so much the daily counts, but the seven-day average. Uh, but I know that, I, you know, after seeing some of those numbers, I canceled my plans just because I don't want to take the added risk of being out and about. Right. Well, that's what they're saying. They're saying, look at the seven-day average and, and really focus on that. If, if you look, you'll see the trend line that sort of goes you know more evenly and then you'll see these big spikes up and down um, but they say ignore the spikes look at the trend line and that kind of shows where we are but as lieutenant governor josh green said when i interviewed him for the story he said human nature doesn't work this way people yes. see these alarming numbers and they get alarmed yeah all right well hopefully they can sort this out but thanks so much Stuart. thank you Catherine. that was reporter Stuart yurton with today's reality check to read his full story visit civilbeat.org This summer, Honolulu police officers began stepping up their presence in Chinatown with regular foot patrols. HPR arts and culture reporter Noe Tanigawa joins us this morning with an update. Good morning, Noe. Oh, yes, Catherine. <laughs> Some actual good news. <laughs> and, you know, first off, mahalo to everybody at the downtown Chinatown neighborhood board meeting last night. Thrills and chills once again, Catherine, I'll mm. tell you. About 80 people all passionate wow. about Chinatown. And it was really super to get out and make the rounds again with the Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Wound Care team. You know, they go around looking for their clients because their clients these days have all been, quote, cleaned up. We don't have pa compassionate disruptions anymore. We have cleanups, and they're not in their usual places. Most remarkable, 
the absence of that Stonewall crew lounging along River Street. They have been a fixture for years. And where have they gone? I mean, they were talking about that last night in the neighborhood board meeting, and that is another story. But today, I'd like to introduce you to Fran Butera, Chinatown resident and property owner. She's lived at the corner of Mauna Kea and Pauahi for 10 years, and she really appreciates these cleanups. We met around noontime, and people were starting to line up for the free lunch service there, you know, along Pauahi there by River of Life. And Butera says, you know, we've all got to face the fact the city of Honolulu owns key parks, parking lots, and empty storefronts that are a huge part of Chinatown's problems. And recently, Councilmember Fukunaga was drilling down on this same issue. I mean, case in point, right, we were walking down Pauahi Street from Mauna Kea to River, the city owns properties on both sides of Pauahi here. On the left, huge senior housing, Pauahi Senior Rec Center. It's been boarded up for quite a while. Across that, there's a block of vacant boarded up storefronts. But let me tell you, that's a lot better than what was there. Butera says the city was leasing to a notorious liquor store called Best Market with drug sales and paraphernalia right there. And their customers, too, right next to Pauahi Hale, Safe Haven, Homeless Shelter, right across senior housing. Neighbors were just throwing, you know. They went to city community services with pictures and their complaints, and the city canceled the lease. So Butera was happy. She said they won one small victory. But it wouldn't have happened unless a group of people in the community looked around and said, wait a minute, <laughs> why is this happening? This is wrong. When you're a 40% owner of a place like Chinatown, as a landlord, you have to be present. You have to be in the neighborhood, be at your properties, and see what's going on. Cleaning up River Street is a huge, huge improvement, and it's a huge step on that path to making this part of Chinatown better. You know, it's, it has to be sustained. What'll it take to sustain that? I'm not sure. But we bless this administration so much for trying as hard as they are for like really owning this problem that they didn't they didn't cause. They are owning it and they're just working so hard to fix things. <laughs> Sorry about that audio. I mean, that was the power yeah. washers on the yes. sidewalk because it's, <laughs> it's happening. You know, community member Fran Butera, I mean, she, she runs the Chinatown uh, Watch website. So if you've ever seen that website, yes. right, Catherine, you know she knows how bad it can be. And she's hopeful. Oh, I, I uh, you know, have to hand it to them. I mean, you've got to be persistent. You know, I was down there recently and happened to see a number of those uh, officers patrolling. And I think it helps. It <laughs> does. You see so many more cop cars everywhere down there. I have not seen any patrols. I spent four hours down there Tuesday, did not see one foot patrol person. But there are a lot of cars and everything. And the bulb outs are fantastic. You know, it's that area that is around a curb that now is, has these green stanchions and pink brick paving. You can pull over legally into that pink brick paving and pop out, pick up a takeout food, get a lay, get some flowers. This is the way Chinatown is supposed to work. And it's starting to really happen that way. They're excited. And there's stuff happening coming up on the other end of Chinatown, too. You know, closer to Nu'uanu, um, the Downtown Art Center's got a watercolor show on now um, through September 8th. It's really nice. And they've got a little picture show. It's, it's small watercolors down at Arts at Mark's Garage. You can just cash and carry some terrific um, little pieces down there. But I was just in Base Bookshop the other day, and I really want to recommend this show of photographs that's coming up by Brandon Liu. This is a deep study of this four-mile section of Kaukonahua Road. I mean, you hear about that every day, right, in the traffic reports, but who's had a chance to study this section? He's studying a specific stretch between Waialua and Wahiawa. This is going to be beautiful. It's there at Base Bookshop on Nu'uanu. Arts and Letters has got a terrific show on, too. I think you're going to like it. And, you know, what we're looking at at Arts at Marks is really fun. A 20th anniversary luminary show. I'm kind of in that show. And, and what I'm putting in there is a, a digital picture frame of the theme of it is What Gives Me Hope. And I've got some pictures in there that from the community, art, people, events, that just have given me hope in the last year. And you know what? I've got a picture from the last moment of last spring's pledge drive oh. in that <laughs> mix. Well, I was down, you know, at that uh, downtown art center, and it is a fabulous space. And, and you, like it? you know, all the, 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 the shops and the shows, the exhibits that are happening, I mean, that's what 
they want to draw people down there. And, you know, the patrols, I think, have certainly helped to, you know, uh, you know, keep it safer for everybody. Exactly. And the Hawaii Hand Movers Hui is moving into the deck. They got terrific classes, and they're going to be bringing people in there next month. Oh, okay. I tell you. That's to look forward to. Yeah. Then. All right. Thanks so much, Noe. Hey, happy Aloha Friday. Uh, happy Aloha Friday. We have been talking to HBR's Noe Tanagawa. She's been keeping an eye on the activity in Chinatown. Check out her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. On the next Fresh Air, we continue our Summer of Soul series featuring interviews with musicians who perform in the concert documentary Summer of Soul about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. From our archive, we'll hear my interviews with jazz drummer Max Roach and jazz singer Abby Lincoln. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years of serving Hawaii businesses and homeowners with a range of air conditioning and refrigeration products, supplies, and tools. CostcoHawaii.com. Shaka, the iconic Hawaiian gesture, is about to go big. It's the focus of a documentary film in the making. Here's a clip from the trailer. How is it that a little speck on Mother Earth has so much influence throughout the world? He had no idea that his sign was going to become famous. The story is a lot richer and fuller than just the Shaka. For me, it's a, it's a more personal. It's a strength that he had. Tutuhamana was an icon. And for us, we need to keep telling that story. Shaka, The Power of Aloha is a documentary that is wrapping up production. We sat down with Steve Sue, director and writer of the film. He sees a movement in the making. The Shaka project started a couple years ago. I happened to be in Lae, and I met some of the kapuna. And they said, oh, well, you, you want to know about the Shaka story? We'll tell you the Shaka story. And they had told me that they never told it to anybody full length before. And then I started asking around town after that, how many people know about this story? And literally nine out of 10 people have zero knowledge about it. Maybe another half of that percent that's remaining knew something about it. It has something to do with a guy losing his fingers. They didn't know the whole lineage of the story. And certainly they didn't know the meaning of the story. So the Kapuna got back in touch with me and they said, you know, would you tell our story? And I thought, well, this is a Hawaiian ethnic story. That's kind of sketchy for me to like get in there and do that. I was kind of afraid of it, to be frank. And they said, well, we really need to tell the story because we're in our 80s and we're not going to be here that much longer. And we want the Keiki to have this story. It's a very important story. So I thought, wow, well, that's worth at least a try. So I brought a crew up to Laie and we taped half a dozen interviews. And it just turned out to be the most galvanizing thing I'd ever heard. And it wasn't until maybe a few months later when I was in a meeting with Lauren Name of Kamehameha Schools, and she said, oh, Steve, you know, what projects do you have going at Bizgenix? Uh, that's our nonprofit. And normally they fund things like our Lemonade Alley program, which is a, a lemonade stand contest, or our Project Lemon Tree, where we grow lemon trees on school campuses. She looked right at this one piece of paper. She says, Shaka, what is that? And so I explained it to her and I thought, you're not gonna be interested in this. This is like way, like very speculative. And she goes, no, Kamehameha Schools needs to be part of this program. And wow. so she said, how much do you need? I told her how much I needed. She said, we'll guarantee that. We'll give you some to start, go out and try to raise the rest. So we raised some money in addition to what KS gave us initially, and we started production on this. And I already had some tape in the can, which was great. And it was truly galvanizing tape. 
So that's how it got started. And interestingly enough, whenever I talk to people, first thing out of their mouths, if they're, if they're knowledgeable about this area at all, is they say, who do you work with up there? And I said, oh, Auntie Kayla. And as soon as I say Auntie Kayla Miller, they're like, oh, then you're good because she's it. Well, you know, I, I think folks will appreciate, you know, that you come to this project with humbleness. You know, you were wondering, am I the one to tell the story? Yeah. And yet they asked you. Amazing, right? Yeah. And so I guess I figured out because I'm part of a nonprofit and I really didn't want to tell the story, they knew that I came from the right heart. And certainly, as we've discovered this story, and it, it has been a quest. It's a very long quest. It goes literally around the world. It goes to Japan. It goes you know, through surf culture all over the world. But really what I discovered is it's a Hawaii story for all Hawaii people, which means that it has to be inclusive of everybody that's here. So everything we're doing with this film is to be entirely inclusive and bring in all the groups. You know, We've talked to OHA and certainly KS. KS has provided uh, three cultural consultants. Um, we're being very honorable to the story. But what's great is the authentic story is the hope for the future of the entire planet because the shaka is all about the aloha spirit. And the man that originally taught us the shaka and what it meant really was the kapuna of kapuna. And this is what our current day kapuna tell us. And they all knew him as children. So imagine like some of that's 80 years old now and they're sitting tying fishing nets with Tutu Hamana which is the man that lost his fingers. And he tells them a story about how he lost his fingers. Well, there's a lot of question about how did this man lose his fingers in the first place? Turns out he told a different story to every kid he encountered. So hilarious, like leg polar, tall teller of tales. And it's super funny because when you cut them together as a film, it makes him a very colorful human being. It's a great portrait of Hamana. And he lost his fingers in an accident on the plantation? Is that a that Well, that that's works? sort of the leading story. It almost doesn't matter how he lost them. And you'll discover in the film some of the tall tales. I will tell you that there was one story where he was on the boat and the shark jumped out of the water and bit him off. He told one child that. Another keiki he told, I was throwing dynamite in the water to harvest the fish because he was the master fisherman of La'i, right? And so his goal was to feed the people but not fish out the reef because the reef in that area, everybody lived off of. This was not a ahupua that was super like productive uh, all the lands. It had some land, but not huge. In fact, the whole Kahuku sugar mill area was created out of really sand dunes and wastelands by the Mormon church. So LDS really had a lot to do with the whole blossoming of that side of the island. And that's why the Mormon church, even the Polynesian Cultural Center is part of their invention in fact, there's one year that the LDS church burned down, and so they started having hukilau to raise money to rebuild the church. And that's how they eventually became Polynesian Cultural Center, because the site was done every year for many years, and that became this literally the number one attraction in the state for visitors. I think many people may not know that there is a statue <laughs> there, yeah. uh, a sculpture over on the campus. You know what? There's actually three statues. Three. There's a statue at the BYU campus. There's a statue at Polynesian Cultural Center. And there's a wooden statue that's lying on the ground at the old site of the Kukuku Sugar Mill. And so when our director, Alex Bacheri, and line producer, Bryson Chun, they were out there shooting some B-roll, they noticed a statue laying in the weeds. And they said, what is that? It turns out to be a statue of Tutu Hamana. Wow. Yeah, so there's amazing things that we found along the way, not the least of which is You'll discover the, the lineage of the word Shaka in the film. It actually comes from Japan. So Shakyamuni is the first Buddha in Japan. And that Buddha stands for, fear not, you will be safe. And this is why it became like a super important story for anybody that was a train jumper. And, th and that's actually the, the real story was that kids would try to jump the train that ran from Sunset Beach to Kaneohe. And when they would look out for Tutu Homana, who was a security guard on the train, he had many jobs. This is one of his jobs. So when they would look and they would say, oh, Tutu's not looking, they'd flash this sign because he lost the three fingers. So they were mimicking him. But the, the meaning of that was actually consistent with what the Buddha in Japan would, would tell you is, you know, the whole idea of fear not, live a little bit. And that's probably why surfers picked it up, you know, because that's like Eddie would go. Jump the wave. It's a little dangerous, but you'll live large. You will find nirvana. That's another kind of Buddhism connection. 
And then they added the whole thing hang loose, right? So there's a little bit of a happy-go-lucky theme to it. Along the way, there were guys like Frank Fossey who added the shake. You know, if you use it for campaigning and you're standing on the side of the street, you, of course, would shake it because animation attracts attention. Right. You wave a shaka. I remember doing many stories where uh, he would and a lot of his supporters would have the, the foam shaka, yeah. the giant, to, yeah. to get your attention. All and yeah. all those yellow stickers, they were everywhere. Yeah. And in fact, you know, think of this. Like, he was the renegade mayor here. He was like a real rabble-rouse. He was like for real, like raw. He was, was. (laughs) fear not, it's okay, go for it. He was literally the meaning of the shaka. So it's my no happenstance that, you know, he was the guy. And of course, there were others like Lippius Spinda, who was a used car salesman and a part-time actor. He was the first to take it on to 5.0, the first, the Jack Lord version of 5.0. So all of these pieces helped the story go global. And of course, the biggest global side of it was the surf community taking it out and pushing it from... California to Australia and then around the globe. And of course, that went to all extreme sports because of the same sentiment, fear not, it's okay, go for it. You know, whether you're snowboarding or skydiving, jujitsu is really big on the shaka. So it's kind of a, a global story. And what we found is that at this point in time, it's extremely important story because we've got the pandemic and we've got acidic politics and everybody's like all freaked out, right? But what does a shaka have to offer? It's literally the way to imbue the aloha spirit in everyone. Just freaking take the chill pill. Just stop it, you know? And believe in the best in people and be hopeful and be inspired and be optimistic. So if Hawaii can share this optimism and good feeling, good sentiment for others with the rest of the world, wow, what an amazing thing because we taught the world something. And it's legit. It's not like a conjured up moral of the story. It's the for real deal. What I love, though, is that this has really become a magnet. You know, you have some pretty high-quality talent that working on the music. <laughs> yeah, we do. So Henry Capono, the legend of music, and really one of my good, good friends now. You know, we worked on a couple things together before, but I didn't know him that well. But as soon as this project came up, he's like, wow, this is interesting. And then, of course, his wife, Leslie, who is really, she's the pants of the family. I mean, Henry always wears pants, true. But... As Leslie, she's like the business person. And, you know, I have so much respect for both of them. The team is unbelievable because she really keeps it on track. You know, they they really help the entire music industry here. When the pandemic started, they put a donate button on their website. They raised over $300,000 and they gave it away to musicians and, you know, backline people, all the technicians, all the people that were literally out of gigs down for two years. So they've supported so many families, and that's exactly what the Aloha Spirit and the Shaka are about. So when Henry's like, yeah, I want to do this, and then Leslie's like, well, we're all in or all out, she eventually, she's pretty cautious. You know, eventually she goes, okay, so we want to be all in. I go, oh, there's nothing better I could hear than that, right? So now when I see them in meetings, and, you know, we have our own meetings, and at the end of the meeting, so I was like, okay, see you guys later. I love you. And it's like, yeah, I really do love those guys, and they love me back. What a great thing to have out of this kind of a project. And it has nothing to do with Henry being a big guy. It's that they're lovely people. Henry, by the way, in an interview, I asked him, so Henry, are you Hawaiian? He goes, yeah, 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 I'm Hawaiian. I go, oh, okay, how much? And he goes, well, I'm 50% Hawaiian and the other 50% Hawaiian. <laughs> That's the way we do things here, right? So he's, yeah, he's very hat in hand and just a lovely human being. And Leslie, 100%, like, wow, what an amazingly smart woman and just the right vibe, the right motivation for doing everything. So, yeah, so Henry has actually written an anthem for the picture. Um, there's several pieces that he's already worked on, so a full soundtrack, custom. The goal is to do our version of We Are the World. So an anthem that we have all the top musicians here, all the headliners, be on this recording, go in a big studio, tape them. It'll be part of the big show. And the music is just, it's galvanizing. It's literally called The Power of Aloha. And the, the title of the film is Shaka, The Power of Aloha. We went through some machinations of cultural studies as to whether we can actually use that name because aloha is a Hawaiian word, right? And so eventually KS came back, and this was after maybe three or four weeks study, and they said, yes, this is the right title. This is fine to use. This makes total sense. So I mentioned that to Henry at a meeting, and literally it was like the next day, he says, Steve, check this out. I want to see if you like this. And he sends me like a 30-second tape, 
And he goes, I call it the power of Aloha. Wow. This is a genius man. I mean, the lyrics, the melody lines, nothing obvious, complete new artistry, total genius man. So we're very, very fortunate to have him. We also have a Hawaiian director, Alex Pacheri. So Alex, it's really funny because Alex at one point is like the third production meeting in. He goes, hey, Steve, does it matter if I'm Hawaiian or not? And I said, I never thought you were Hawaiian because you've got an Italian name. And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm kind of chop suey, right? I'm this and that. I go, but he says, I'm good part Hawaiian. And I'm really excited about this because he does Hawaiian films. And in fact, I, I think three years ago, he had a People's Choice Award at HIF for The Pit which is about an emu pit. And I saw the movie. I thought, this is a great movie. That's why I was like, I want this guy. He's a really good director. And he knows Hawaiian storytelling. So it just happens that he he's an ACM grad, Academy of Creative Media, up at UH, as is our producer, Bryson Chun. And he's also award-winning himself. So he's a writer, producer type. Bryson was at Sundance Lab. So like decorated, right? That's hard to get into. And he's it's just amazing human beings. In fact, our whole Kapuna crowd up in La'e, they love Bryson. They're like, oh, where's Bryson? If Bryson doesn't show for a shoot, they're like, where's Bryson? They're so disappointed. <laughs> like, I don't want to do this interview. Uh, but yeah, they're they're just completely fantastic. And then, I don't know if you know this or not, but our nonprofit, BizGenics, we run a studio for the state now. It's called ID8, and that's spelled I-D numeral 8. If you're interested, ID8.org. But it's literally to help the production community get up and out in this state. We want original content produced here. So it's great that we have a studio because it's very convenient for even the Shaka film. But we make it available to community organizations, um, certainly commercial shoots. There's been a lot of film and TV production in there. And so just excited to bring all those guys aboard. But then in the process of getting that studio up and running, Another production company here called Sight and Sound Hawaii, Sight and Sound Productions, they're the largest, I think, sort of GAC supplier to the industry here. And they were recently purchased by Brian Spicer, who's the producer and director behind 5.0 and Magnum. And so I'm sitting in a conference call with, with him and Dennis Burns, our creative services director. And Dennis ran a studio here as well, 1013 in Pacific Focus. So Dennis at one point had dropped out of the call because he had a bad connection. And so, and go figure for these media people, right? Media people should have perfect connections all the time. They should have lots of, what do you guys call it? Wattage and bandwidth and all that. So Dennis drops out and I'm sitting there with Brian for like, we're twiddling our thumbs and, and I didn't know Brian at all. And Brian goes, well, what else you got cooking? And I said, well, nothing like what you guys do, you know, with like real production. And, and he said, well, you must have some going in a studio there. And I said, well, we got one little documentary. He goes, tell me about it. I said, well, the Shaka movie. And he, as soon as I said these, I'm in. Mm. And literally, he's all in. So he's exec producer on the project. He's providing gear and you know shooters and all sorts of great things at really like rock bottom rate for us. So we've been very fortunate to have people with that type of vision aboard. And Brian's goal is is to build this creative arts industry in the state. He's not like a guy that's like in and out. He's going to be here. And he's, this is his home. Right. You know? he's, he's all in. <laughs> he is all in. He's investing here. He's, he literally opens up, like, he gets a four-acre site in Kaka'ako and reconditions a 20,000-square-foot warehouse, which is one of the, I guess, the primary sets now for Doogie Hauser that's just starting up. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of production happening in this town. You know, you've got Magnum. You've got, uh, what's the other one, that the cop show? Uh, NCIS. NCIS, which Hawaii. is huge, right? So, and there's always films going on, vampire movies coming. I mean, there's amazing things going on here. We have been talking to Steve Sue, the man behind the documentary film, Shaka, The Power of Aloha. And we'll, we will continue our conversation right after this break. Radio comes from Queens Island Urgent Care, treating non-life-threatening illnesses and injuries at six locations across Oahu. Walk-ins welcome. Learn more at queens.org. You don't have to be wealthy or retired to take advantage of tax smart giving. Whatever your income or stage in life, you can help protect your assets and create a meaningful legacy. 
and you'll help secure the station's future as an independent community service. Include HPR in your will or estate, or name us as a beneficiary in your retirement plan. To learn more, go to hawaiipublicradio.org legacy, or call the station during business hours. Welcome back to the conversation. Let's pick up our interview with Steve Sue, writer and director of the upcoming documentary, Shaka, The Power of Aloha. This particular film, though, I know there is a education component, too, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's how it started, because when Kamehameha schools looked at it, my original goal was to do a very short documentary, like a 30-minute, just what is the story about, what's the origin and meaning of it, teach kids in classrooms, show the film, teach them what is the Aloha Spirit, because Aloha Spirit is a very intellectual construct. That's why there's a law of Aloha in the state. But ultimately, that's really hard for people to like internalize. So as soon as you add something like a moving picture, a film, or you add a gesture, now you've internalized it and you can share it. And we see this gesture everywhere on the planet. We need to own it from here. It's like surfing started from here, Shaka started from here. We need to put our marker in it. This is basically IP for the state of Hawaii yes. and its people. So that's part of it. But the other bigger part of it is what does it actually mean? It's not just some goofy thing that you do. There is a lot of history. There's a lot of meaning. If you study Tutuhamana's history as the Kapuna of Kapuna, what would he do? Kapuna is like wise person, right? He's got all the wisdom of the world in his story. So we can share this. Yeah, and his loss is really our gain. I mean, when you think of, you use this image of the Shaka and you know you tie it back to Hawaiian values. Yeah. No, completely right. And I don't think he ever thought of himself as a disabled person or a lost person. More that he, in that day, you just bucked up. A lot of people lost fingers on plantations, you know, and a lot of it, especially with like train cars, those hitches that go together. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, people lose digits very easily. So it's like you couldn't just like go on welfare. It didn't exist. You just like buck up and get another two jobs, right? right? <laughs> I mean, in fact, here's how big this man was. So, you know, the, the old adage with throwing fishing nets, you know, the throw kind, is that the weights that are put on them, they can get very heavy and because you want it to sink fast. So the faster it sinks, the more fish you get. And the bigger the net, the better. So sort of the old adage is like, you can throw a fishing net's like about half your weight. So if you're like 100 pounds, you throw a 50 pound fishing net. His fishing net was 100 pounds. But he was probably three to 350 pounds in 6'10", 6'11". All the photographic evidence of him shows that. So he was, him and two other brothers were known as the three giants. They are gargantuan men, very statuesque. And that's why he always played King Kamehameha in the Ali'i parades uh, at the Hukilaus. And we have a lot of evidence. Of, in fact, he played King Kamehameha in front of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Wow. How cool is that? Oh, this is such a rich story. It it's is. Amazing. Yeah, 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 it is. And there's more richness to come. I'm not going to ruin the story for people okay. that want to watch it. But, <laughs> but I will tell you that, yes, it is a rich story, but the moral of it is absolutely necessary to the functioning of this world going forward. And we're getting more and more technical, and we get more and more intellectual, and we're losing humanness on this planet. And I'm a technologist. I run a software company, right? So it's like, I'm not all fun and games with film. I do other things that are very intellectual and to me kind of brain numbing sometimes. And I, I wanna guard against that. The value of data is wonderful, but it's not the end all. The end all is love. It's being of service. It's being human, accepting people who they are and celebrating their unique qualities. I think Hawaii is a world leader in that class. I think oftentimes, Hawaii is trying too hard to be like the rest of the world. We're kind of insecure on one hand and overly optimistic in some other hands. Like we can be a world leader, but we have to pick our battles very carefully. I think this is a particularly good one to line behind. And we've had some kind of interesting success with that. I was meeting with Don Ige about a year and a half ago now. I meet with her maybe once every year or so. Right, and she's an educator, a first lady. Yeah, she, um, absolutely, um, educator. She went to uh, James Campbell High School and Eva and all that. So we practice at that school a lot as well. And, and so we have a lot of lineage with where she's been. And so she's interested in our programs for education. She took one look at the Shaka program. She goes, oh, we need to do an education summit based on this. How do we teach the keiki? So that has blown up into this whole Shaka summit that has seven themes. 
So Malama Tourism is being anchored by John DeFries, HTA executive director or the CEO. Mm-hmm. So he's very interested in how do we teach tourists how to travel responsibly here, you know, how to be courteous to our people and not to step out of the bounds. And then likewise, from local residents, how do we teach our local residents to have tolerance for people that come here and support our economy? We can share this place all together. If everybody plays nicely, I think we can all have a great time together. But John's very interested in that aspect of the piece. There's a specific Japanese-Hawaii connection. This is one of the, the absolute authentic ways Japan culture ties with Hawaii culture. So there's a thought leader summit on that. So we're basically doing these like 90-minute pauhanas at our studio, and uh, we tape them. We're actually paused right now because of COVID. I was like, oh, man, this is so bad. Everything's getting paused. And these are small. These are, right. you know, 20 people in a room, basically UN style, everybody talking and being recorded. But the idea is how do we think forward how to use the shaka to better the world or certain capacity like education or uh, Japan uh, Hawaii ties or tourism, uh, sustainability, because Hamana was the sustainability expert and he really lived and breathed it every day. Yeah, so we're pretty excited with that particular piece because it's doing a lot of good in and of itself. And I realized this the other day, this is starting to become a movement. There's so many people I like jumping that, on a it. A movement, yes. yeah. And it's, it's the right underpinning for why are we doing this and what's the eventual outcome. Even the state has jumped in, the Workforce Development Council commissioned us to write a curriculum for at-risk youth at the Youth Services Center. So we did a pilot at Youth Services Center at Dole Cannery between March and June of this year. So I was literally in the classroom every Friday teaching this innovation and entrepreneurship During class. this pandemic. During wow. the pandemic, yeah. And this is really amazing because the kids would kind of dial in by you know, remotely on the computers. By the end, they're all coming in. They were masking up and coming in because they really wanted to be part of it. So we saw this amazing engagement factor with it. But what we did was we taught them the basic story of the Shaka, and then they made Shaka products. So they designed T-shirts for the film that would help support the film. They designed stickers. I detect a little uh, Lemonade Alley. uh. (laughs) Yeah, well, we did that one too as well. Yeah, so, Mm -hmm. you know, like we're known for the whole entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. innovation space. So it was a, a chance for us to practice what we really knew well. But taking the innovation component, entrepreneurship component, all the way to what I call social venture, which means that you're doing something for a profit, but you're also helping the community. And you may actually even do it just to give all your money to a nonprofit. That's what Lemonade Alley always was, right? That, you know, teams of kids would come in and vent lemonades and lemonade stands, but they would have to choose a charity to donate all their proceeds to. Well, it's amazing when you think of this image, this little image. I mean, it packs a punch. It does, yeah, even though there's only two fingers left. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so what's the timetable for completion of the film and rollout? Yeah, so we were um, originally trying to roll this out in the spring. So of in, this year? Uh, well, the spring of 2022, right, the, okay. next spring. And there's a gigantic shot in the script that I still want to get. It's a large shaka contest at Sunset on the Beach. So we're actively looking for a sponsor for that event. We need 150 grand to put that event on, and, and it's a big number. Because we have a big crew that has to go with it, it's a shooting shot. So if you want to be in a movie, this <laughs> is your chance to be in, in 6,000 extras in a Shaka movie. But the Shaka contest bookends the film. So it starts out, have you ever watched America's Got Talent? Yes. So you know how it starts with like in the green room mm-hmm. and all the contestants are primping and priming right. and they're, they're freaking out because they're like, I don't know if I'm going to be any good or not. So we kind of start that way, which is poses the question as to how do you throw a shaka well? Because if you don't throw it well, you're going to get razzed on stage, right? Super bad. And there's through our history, we've discovered that there's maybe half a dozen really clear different versions of the shaka for different reasons, historical reasons. So, so you you want to put this event on, but yeah. we're in COVID, and so we're in COVID, so we're waiting that. Out. Yeah, and so we initially wanted to do that in November, uh, but that was looking like oh, that's kind of sketchy with COVID. Now COVID's heating up again, so it's oh, it's probably not the best time. So now we're looking at pushing that off. And and so this scene is so important because imagine 6,000 on the beach being the visual manifestation of the Aloha spirit and Ohana and, you know, Henry on stage, Kanakapila. All that stuff needs to be this huge visual payoff. It's like Bollywood always has the big dance scene at the right. end. This is our version <laughs> of the Bollywood dance scene. Well, yeah. I'll keep my fingers crossed that you can, uh, you know, we'll, that we'll, that works. We'll yeah. do it. And and so it'll be probably in the spring now. So we're going to push it off maybe a few months so that we can get past the pandemic. 
that is our very last shot. It's literally the front and the end, but you know we shoot out of order. So everything in the middle can be completed before then and even edited down. And in fact, we'll probably air um, some of the completed scenes during that event. So it promises to be a really shining, exciting event. We're excited because you know there's many people behind it now, right. like the Waikiki Improvement Association has actually even offered us some money uh, from their restricted funds to help produce this event. So yay, you know, yeah, and yeah. So we'll, well finish it off. But I think a lot of people are looking forward to that happening. So hopefully, you know, s- uh, summer would be an appropriate time for us next year. So about this time next year, that's when we would release. Okay. And our goals for release would be, initially we thought it's in classroom use, you know, PBS would be ideal, um, local stations. I know Alela would air it in a nanosecond, of course. But for us, and this is what Brian has, has noted, is this is the particular type of product that somebody like a Netflix or Amazon Prime would love to to air. And for us, that would be wonderful because then we share it with so many people. Yeah, you want to make a, a big a big impact, a bigger ripple. Of course. A bigger ripple. Of course. If we, we go to festivals. If it turns out good, then we want to put it in film festivals, and that gets a lot of eyeballs and more distribution deals. And I think that for the bigger festivals, this is a very good story because it's kind of political. It's kind of – it's a big deal, right? It, it has the chance of being a movement and really changing people for the better. What Whereas many film product that go, they're, they're kind of like the red pavement products, right. you know, but we'll, we're interesting in a different way. Yeah, well, powerful image, powerful story, rich history. I think it will go far. I hope, <laughs> I I hope we don't mess it up. That's the main <laughs> okay, thing. All right, we don't mess, mess it up. up. <laughs> I got to go live somewhere else. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you ah, spending time with us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. Shakabra. Mahalo. <laughs> That was Steve Sue, executive director and writer of the film Shaka, The Power of Aloha. Sue hopes to uh, release the film next year. That's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, well, we're preempted Monday for the Labor Day holiday, but we will be back with you on Tuesday. Our show is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiano, and Lillian Song. Mahalo to John DeMello for our backyard quiz intro and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us next week. Pick up the conversation. <laughs>